you are here an hour later, which may mean you are an hour more sleepy, or you're an hour more hungry. If you're an hour more hungry, then maybe I can hold your attention this morning. <laughs> it's just afternoon may be uh, difficult. Romans chapter 11. verse 36 for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever amen I beseech you therefore because of all of that and because of what's been said between chapter 1 and chapter 11 and verse 36 <clears throat> He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This morning, I want to talk to you about uh, worldliness. And this afternoon, this morning, how to recognize it and how to overcome it in my life and for you to overcome it in your life. I want to take God's word, hang it before you as a spiritual mirror, and allow us to look into it, that we might be able to recognize worldliness in our own life and deal with it appropriately. Now, now before I begin, I want you to take a good look at these pants I have on. They have two legs a button, a zipper, a belt, which I need now more than I used to. I needed suspenders before to hold them up. But I'm showing you these pants because I want you to understand this. I put my pants on just like you do, one foot at a time. And so as I preach this morning, I want you to understand that I have a problem with worldliness, and you have a problem with worldliness, and let's fight the fight. Let's take a look at it, and may we not be silenced, may we not be put on the sideline, may we not be found as a soldier in the invasion of France in World War II, sitting in the French cafeteria flirting with the waitresses while the Battle of the Bulge is going on. May we be on the battle line. And so this morning, I want to deal with this thing called worldliness. Way back in 1740, a Baptist preacher and a hymn, hymn writer by the name of Robert Robertson it's pretty amazing that I, it was, this is, that song is that old, but he wrote the lyrics to a song where he said, Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Written by a Baptist preacher in the 1700s. And he says to us that our hearts are prone to wander. He's talking about saved people. And that from time to time, we can drift from our moorings. From time to time, we can find ourselves in a place that we never, ever thought we would be as God's children. As the nature of sheep is to go astray, we're uh, prone to wander. And uh, we find, you know, we don't have to go very far into the Bible to find some clear references uh, of uh, the tendency to uh, wander astray. Second Corinthians, a great passage, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, and what part hath he that believeth with the infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And then that well-known verse, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you, and I'll be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. And so the necessity for us to make a determination to come out from the world, to come out from those influences of the world that are taking it away from God, is, it is a Bible principle. It's a, it's, a, it's a very truth found in the Word of God. Then we have a very strong passage in 1 John where he says to uh, the readers of 1 John, um, his brethren in the Lord, love not the world. Of course, he's not talking about created world, but he's talking about the world system. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Shocking. Uh, honestly, it's shocking wording that when my heart's in the world, then my heart is not filled with the love of the Father. And then that verse that Brother Gerth spoke of on Wednesday night, but James comes out probably with one of the strongest statements in the Bible uh, towards worldliness. And he says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world <coughs> is an enemy of God. And so just these three verses has rightly given Christians the idea that this thing about where our heart is at is a very serious matter. They recognize that God speaks <coughs> very plainly to us in this matter of worldliness. And it's necessary from time to time for you and for me to take inventory of our spiritual man where he says, wherefore come out from among them. Whosoever will be the friend of the world, it says here, is the enemy of God. And James goes on and implies that we can drift from our closeness to, the, to our Savior. He, he says that we ought to separate from the world and the way to God. He implies that when we have a worldly mind, that we have a double-mindedness about us, and we're bouncing one this way, this way, and this way, and this way, and, and that we need to have a one-mindedness about us. And he implies also that, that there is a degree of humility that's needed from time to time. 
in my life and in your life. Because it's by the grace of God we are what we are. And so let's look here in Romans chapter 12. And I want you to to first look at that verse, uh, that word in verse 2, where it says, Be not conformed to this world. That this world is trying to mold us and to make us into its pattern. That this world's system, energized by Satan and uh, the flesh pitching in, is trying to mold us into something quite different than the image of Christ. What Christ is trying to do is to mold us into the image, what God's trying to do is to mold us into the image of Christ. He's trying to, to get us to be more God-like, more Christ-like, and the world wants us to be just attached to the world. When our hearts are moved away uh, from a close walk with God, and we take the Demas road, living in this present world, we will not lose our salvation if you're truly saved, but neither will your life uh, glorify God. And so the Bible warns us that we cannot, as his children, have all the fullness that he wants for us to have as his children. There in 1 John, he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So what does he mean there that we don't have the love of the Father is not in him? Well, of course he's not talking about us losing our salvation because he says over there in the last part of Romans chapter 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Can, can tribulation or or, or, or or, or trials, or death, or life, or angels, or principalities, or powers, or things present, or things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. And so when he's talking about the love of God is not in us, he's not talking about we lose our salvation. But a very interesting verse, in, and uh, we'll probably turn to it later, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we saw this verse here, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And then he went on and said, And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Almighty. He's not talking about works for salvation, but he's talking about this, that God can at times be more of a father to us than at other times. That God is not going to bless us when we're in rebellion. That God wants to to be be actively our father. He wants to be involved in our lives. But when I'm in the world, he cannot just overlook it. And he can't be all that he wants to be to us. And so when I'm I'm introducing all of this, I'm simply saying that what he's saying, these things that he's saying, is that, that it's a serious thing that he's talking about. And, and, uh, and he will be a father to us. Because of worldliness, uh, God cannot be all that he wants to be to us. And so, how do I recognize worldliness in my life? What does it look like? What, what is worldliness? When I look at somebody, <laughs> I say, oh boy, they're worldly. Or, uh, or, or less likely, I look in the mirror and say, boy, you're worldly today, buddy. 
we don't really do those things, but how, how do we recognize worldliness? To the Amish, worldliness may be uh, having electricity and driving a car. To some of the Corinthian believers, to eat meat offered to idols was worldliness. And, and, and people uh, as part of that Corinthian church is really having a problem. When I went to Bible school, I had a college professor who thought it would be worldly if a preacher wore any other colored shirt to the pulpit than a white shirt. So I want you to make sure today to see <laughs> I've got my white shirt on. For some, going to the theater, using dice, or having a deck of cards in your home was very worldly. And I'm not too old not to remember that. At one time, a church member came to me, very upset, and he told me for a woman to wear leggings or long johns under her dress was worldly because those were men's britches. Under her dress, we mind you. And I told him, well, that's fine, but your wife may have some real problems when it gets to be 40 below. I remember one day a very upset church member coming to my office, and he was stirred up because a mission work that we were sponsoring was using a bass guitar in the song service. It was in its beginning stages, and at that time they didn't have a piano player, and the bass guitar helped kept keep the beat and keep people on, you know, on the right beat. And it was really an aid to the service. But because the bass guitar is used in rock and roll music, it was worldly. And we, Pastor, we got to get that bass guitar out of our mission work. We can't be we can't be sponsoring this mission work when a bass guitar is being played in the in the worship service. Well, you know, I, I never did figure out if it was the body of the guitar, the neck of the guitar, or the strings of the guitar that were worldly. And I never could quite figure out how the piano was could be used in worship service. When, when um, Jerry Lee Lewis used to rock out to it pretty good. What is worldliness? What is it? Well, <clears throat> for a better definition, worldliness is a condition of the heart being concerned with worldly affairs to the neglect of spiritual things. And actually, the Spirit of God is powerful enough that I have a sense of worldliness, and I know uh, when I am living in worldliness. Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us an example in the very first books, uh, uh, very first chapters of the Bible concerning two characters, one that very godly man, not sinless, not perfect, but a godly man. And another that was a very worldly man. And this is really a picture that displays 
Abraham and Lot, and it's an account in the moment of time when Lot's uh, and, and Abraham's herdmen were fighting over where their sheep should graze, and and they came to a place where they needed to separate. And here Abraham's letting Lot choose first when Lot should have let his his uncle Abraham choose first, and Lot's choosing the well-watered plains of Jordan that look like Egypt and uh, and very rich, but very wicked. And we find these two guys, Lot and Abraham. If you go with me back to Genesis chapter 18, we find something said about Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19, here's what God said of Abraham. Not a perfect man. Remember, he even claimed that his wife was his sister at one time. But he said in verse 18 of Genesis 18, verses 18 and, and 19, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, God said, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And so God said, I know this guy, and I know he's going to train his children. I know that he's going to do just, and, and he's going to have proper judgment. A great example of a godly man. But on the other hand, we have Lot, and, and the commentary on Lot is written for us in 2 Peter, and this is what the Bible says about Lot. And delivered just Lot, so he was a saved man, vexed, which means he's troubled, he's stirred up. It means that he, he's uh, disturbed. Vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The lifestyle of the people of Sodom, among whom Lot called brothers at one time. He said, oh, brothers don't do so wickedly. They were called wicked. And Lot's living there. Lot's living as a very gross, ungodly man. He's, he's, he's not a spiritual man. He's a man that's overcome with worldliness. Lot, the, the worldly man, and Abraham, the godly man. And so, so let's just go to these two men. Let's forget about uh, white shirts. Let's forget about whether a bass guitar is, is, is worldly or not worldly. And let's just go see the tendencies and what we can find in the Bible concerning a guy named Lot who had his soul vexed daily living among wicked people and a guy named Abraham, who God said, I know this man. I know he'll raise his children right. Not a perfect man, but he's a godly man. Listen, it is possible for us to live godly. God can enable us to live godly. And listen, to grasp the world and live in worldliness 
is to lose more than you want to lose. So the first thing I want to say to you about these men is friends of the world lack intimacy with God. I have to sit down before my mirror in the Word of God and say, okay, Humphrey, how close are you to the Lord lately? How intimate are you with the Lord? How personal are you with the Lord? We're here in Genesis. If you look in chapter 18, God has come down to survey Sodom and Gomorrah. Not really. He saw it from heaven, but he's going to come down. And we find three individuals coming to Abraham's tent. And it's two servants and the Lord. Really, this is Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. And Jesus Christ... And two servants have come down to see Abraham and to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says there, and the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, so we know this is Jehovah God, appeared unto, Ab- appeared unto him, that is Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him, and when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. And he said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, and I'll fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts, after that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant." And they said, so do as thou hast said. And so as he comes there, Abraham invites him in. He has fellowship, sweet fellowship. The fellowship is obvious because he says there in 18 and 19 that he knew him and he's going to raise his children. And as they get ready to leave, in verse 22, the men turned their faces from thence, and they went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord, that God's staying there, that God is is communicating to him, and God is sharing with him. And and he uh, prays for his lot, lot, his nephew. Communication, fellowship, and, uh, and we'll look at the, the sacrifice that Abraham made here. But what I'm simply saying is that Abraham had fellowship with God. That he, that, that he said, come sit down here. Come, come, I want to sit with you. I want to be with you. I want to commune with you. That, that uh, one of the signs of uh, being a worldly person one of the signs in my life when I know that, I'm, that I, my, my, my life is drifting towards the world is that I don't have any personal time with my Savior. But note, God never goes to Sodom. Chapter 19 and verse 1, there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward 
or the ground. He never goes there. He has no intimate conversation with Lot as he did with Abraham. Because he needed to come out from among them and be separate. And then the Lord says that I will be a father unto you. How is my fellowship? How is your fellowship? Friends of the world, intimacy with God don't go together. Abraham stood before the Lord and he pleaded for his nephew Lot and he said, well, you spare it for this many people and spare it for that. And, and he, has, he has the courage, he has the confidence that he can plead with God, that he can, that he can get a hold of the throne of God and let his prayers go to God's heart to be considered. The songwriter said, and I ask you today, how long has it been since you talked to the Lord and told him your heart's hidden secrets? How long since you prayed? How long since you stayed on your knees till the light shone through? How long has it been since your mind felt at ease? <coughs> How long since your heart knew no burden? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since he knew that he cared for you? How long has it been since you woke with the dawn and felt this day is worth living? Can you call him your friend? How long has it been since you knew that he cared for you? Is your prayer life anemic? Personally, when I'm living in the world, my prayer life's very anemic because here's the deal. When I have a foot in the world and I come to God in prayer, there's always always a wrestling match. And God wants the preeminence. And I don't pray because I don't want to wrestle. You can't be a foot in the world and be the friend of God. We've already saw those verses. How long has it been? It's a very one. It, we're not measuring stuff by the color of your shirt or, or you know, whether you got a deck of cards in your, in your house. But we're measuring how is your relationship with the Father? How is your relationship? Are you in the world? Listen, you're not going to stand before Him and plead with Him when you're not surrendered. The second thing. Worldliness is marked by a lack of generosity toward God. You saw there in the verses that we read in chapter 18 that, that he called them over. He, uh, he, Abraham called the three. He's sitting in his door. He asked him to come over. He gets a little water. And he has it fetched. He washes their feet. He rests them underneath a tree. <clears throat> And then he said, I'll give you, a, I'll fetch a little morsel of bread. 
That is kind of ironic that he says that. Comfort your hearts, and you shall pass on. For therefore are you come, in verse uh, 5 of chapter 18, to your servant. And he said, Abraham, hasten to the tent unto Sarah. <laughs> I mean, um, this is what the woman gets, doesn't he? Okay, we've got three visitors here, wife. We need some food on the table. And Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched the calf tender and good and gave it unto the young man, and he hastened to dress it. It took a while. But it was time with the Lord. And he's giving him his best. He went and got a young calf. He, he's, he's doing all that he can to make these three individuals, two angels and one the Lord, comfortable. Generosity. But note the meal that Lot prepared. In chapter 19 and verse 3, And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast. That's ironic too. And he made them a feast, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Not as much spoken of. Not a great of a meal. And then I want you to note, too, uh, what he says here. And he says, um, uh, uh, verse 2, And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, we will abide in the street all night. He said, come and stay with me, but make sure you get up at the crack of dawn and get out of here. He may have been watching for their lives because of the wickedness of the city, but he didn't want to sit there as Abraham sat there. There was this thing in their life where the, the, the generosity to God is missing. The Lord had taught the lesson to Abraham is more blessed to give than to receive, but somehow with Lot, it was more what I have than what I can give. That, he, that there was a lack of generosity. And, and when you go back to chapter 14, we don't have time to read it all, but in chapter 14, some armies from the north came down and attacked Sodom and Gomorrah, and they captured Sodom and Gomorrah, and one of the, 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 they, they captured Lot, and they took all of Lot's goods, and they took all of Lot's family with him, and Abraham learned of it, and Abraham got his men together, and he pursued after those four, uh, four uh, kings of the north, and they rescued Lot, and they bring him back, and on their way back, he's bringing back Lot's goods, he brought back Lot's family, he brought back the booty that he captured from those four kings, and when he gets down to... Uh, to uh, Salem, out comes a guy named Melchizedek, and Abraham gives a 10% to Melchizedek and ties to him. But you don't find Lot giving anything. Generosity. I want you to go over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm simply saying to you that 
when I get all tight-fisted and I get everything in a row and this is mine and I've made it for myself and I'm going to keep it, it's a sure sign that I've forgotten that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. And it's a sure sign that I'm drifting toward worldliness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, Moreover, brethren, we do to which you of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, how that in great trial of affliction and abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abound to the riches of their liberality. He's talking about giving. And even though they were very poor, they were very liberal. For their power not bear a record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much of entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministry to the saints. And so they're giving beyond their power, the Spirit of God's helping them. And he said, and this they did, not as we had hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Let me tell you, when a church is struggling with finances and people aren't tithing, the problem is not that they don't understand what 10% is. That's not the problem. The problem is even not that they won't give their money. That's not the problem. The problem is that they didn't first give themselves to the Lord. Because when they give themselves to the Lord, the money goes with it. One of the, one of the sure signs that old Humphrey's getting into the world is when I begin to hold things a little closer when I'm less willing to let the Lord stir my heart to let things go. Thirdly, one of the third <coughs> friends of the world lack intimacy with God. Worldliness is marked by lack of generosity toward God. Compromised morals accompanies worldliness. Let's go to chapter 19 here. Let's look at some actions here in verse 19, 1 through, 19, 1 through 9. And, and there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your way. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did eat unleavened bread, and they did eat. And you could argue maybe they had more of a feast than this what I made out. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round both old and young, and all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, and we may know them, that we may know them. Sexual relations. And Lot went out of the door unto the, them and shut the door after him. And he said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as good in your eyes. 
only unto these men do nothing. For therefore hath they under the shadow, they came under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man and lot, and man even lot, and came near to break the door. It's interesting to me that in verse 7, Lot says to these people that he's been living among that want to come in and, and, and commit homosexual relationships with these two angels, that uh, he said, do not so wickedly. He was a moral man. And, and the Bible says there in 2 Peter that, that God vexed his righteous soul daily. It bothered him. Daily it bothered him. He had some morals about him. He was, he was a, a child of God, not at peace in the world. His heart's not surrendered. And notice here that, that Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they function on moral relativism. They, they said to him in verse 9, you've come in here and you try to be a judge always. Who, who made you judge? You know, what, what, what we believe is okay is what we believe is okay. You can believe what's not okay is not okay, or you can believe whatever you want to is okay. And so, so, so morals is relative. And Lot, in the back of his mind, is saying, no, morals are not relative. Morals are a standard given by God. He knew that. He knew that sodomy was wicked. He knew it was going to be judged. But you see, for him to set a standard was going to cost him. Because if you look in chapter 19 and verse 1, you'll see that he sat in the gate. What did that mean? Well, <clears throat> the walls of the city back in those days were very wide. Sometimes two chariots could cross the top of them. But inside the walls is where City Hall was at. Inside the walls, between the walls, is where the transaction of the city was going on. Lot came into that country with great herds. Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. Lot eventually lives in Sodom. And now Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom because he's a political ruler. And if Lot takes a stand here, <laughs> it's just like any Democrat. If you take a stand, he's history. Or maybe Republican today. They would put him in the same bag and shake him up. But I'm simply saying to you that uh, what he did, he compromised. I know this is wicked. I know what you're doing is wicked. Don't do so wickedly, brethren. But we'll compromise here. Here, you take my two daughters and you rape them. Listen, when I got a foot in the world, I found myself stretching the truth at times. I found myself fudging here and there about what I look at. 
what I hear, where I go, what I do. One of the clear signs of being worldly is that where I drew the line yesterday has moved today. From 1968 to 1972, between the time I was 18 and 72, I attended Eastern Oregon College. When I went to La Grande, Oregon, where Eastern Oregon College was at, there was no Baptist church like the one that I came from. And so I went to what was closest to it for two or three Sundays. And then I learned how to do the things in the college dorm just as well as everybody else did. And worldliness always brings compromise. And compromise is always destructive. Do we find ourselves doing that which once we never were considered? Do we go places where we once never would have went? Do we miss spiritual activities that once we always attended? Lot compromised and here's the deal man you'll learn this and you hopefully you'll not learn it the hard way but this is a lesson of compromise it always wants more always Worldly people lack spiritual influences. Again, you see there in Genesis 18, 19 of the godly man, God said, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. The worldly lot had no influence. We just read here that when they came to the door and said, we want these guys, let them out, give them to us. And he said, brother, he even called them brothers. Brother, don't do so wickedly. And you know how much influence he had on them? This much. Get out of the way. Who made you come here to be our judge? Get out of the way. He had no influence. Verse 12 here, chapter 19. And the men said to Lot, Haste thou, 
Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters and whatsoever thou hast in the city? Bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because they cry of them as waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent me to us to destroy it. And Lot went out. And he spake unto his sons-in-laws, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-laws. Lot, following his salvation, had split up with Abraham. As we saw the picture, he, the well-watered plain of Jordan, he moves there. He pitches his tent towards it. He, he begins to live in it. And he's set in the gates. And all the time God's commentary on that place was the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And now when it mattered the most, when he clearly knew that judgment was coming upon this wickedness, he hurries down the street he calls out the name of his daughter and his son-in-law, and he says, get out of here. We got to get out. We got to get out. <laughs> what, what are you doing? Come on. What are, you, what are you playing this prank for? What are you doing? Back in 1968 to 1972, when I was going to Eastern Oregon College, I met a young man from rural Eastern Oregon down in Burns, Oregon. He became a, a friend. He never went to church with me because I wasn't going to church. He taught me how to go to certain places downtown. When I turned 21, we went. And I'm not a man that has many friends because I take that word very deeply. But I loved him. And when I got my heart right with God, I tried to talk to him. I went and hunted him down in the workplace. I wrote him letters. But I seemed as one that mocked. Worldliness will take away your spiritual influence. For some people, you can get it back. But I never got it back with Mike Fig. Worldly people even under God's discipline, will often fail 
will often fail to make a clean break from the world. There, back in Genesis 14, verses 12 through 16, it gives the account of the kings of the north, King Shinar and Shelomar and Edom. They came and took all of Lot's possessions. They took his family captive, and they're hauling him back to the north. Think about that. This big shot that set in the gates of Sodom, they've been conquered. They've captured him. He's bound. His wife is bound. His children is bound. And they're driving that prize bull and all the prize cows and all the prize sheep. They're driving them north. They've taken them. Anything of value, they've stripped from Sodom. I'd say that's a wake-up call. I'd say surely lots of great thoughts are going through Lot's mind at that moment. And Abraham pursues. And Abraham with his men, the small, outnumbered. But God was with them. And they conquer those four kings. And they prevail. He sees Abraham tithing to Melchizedek. And you know what he does? He goes right back into Sodom. Sometimes God gives us a wake-up call. When I came here over 30 years ago, there was a young man here. You don't know him, so I can use his name. Frank Thornton, an Irishman. He'd been saved, supposedly, and I think possibly he was. He said he is called to preach. And I actually allowed him to stand in the pulpit on a couple of occasions. But he got into the world. And you don't need to know everything he's doing, but he got into the world, and the church had to exclude him. And he moved back to California. About two years later, I got a phone call. I couldn't tell who it was, and he finally told me, this is Frank Thornton. I need to talk to you, Pastor Humphrey. And he told me a story about his brother, who was one of the most precious people in his life, as a Navy SEAL was diving under a ship and for some reason, the ship let off some hot oil, and his brother had ingested it into his lungs, and he was laying in the hospital fighting for his life. And Frank said, Pastor, I've been running from the Lord. I need to get right. I want as soon as possible to come back to the church and make things right. 
And I said, that's wonderful, Frank. Let me know what I can do. And I never heard from him again. And later, a friend of his told me that Frank had moved to Southern Oregon, joined a commune, and died in his early 20s. He couldn't make a clean break. Come out from among them and be ye separate. And I think we see this very clearly here in chapter 19 and verse 17. God says, I'm going to judge Solomon and Gomorrah. I'm going to judge the cities of the plain. And it came to pass in verse 17, when he had brought them forth abroad and said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest thou be consumed. And we know later in the story that his wife looked back and she turned to a pillar of salt. But here God's saying, get out of here. Get out of this wicked plain where these people have this wicked influence and get to the mountains. And Lot said, oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast shown unto, him, unto me in saving my life. I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold, now this city is near to thee, unto thee, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. What's he saying? Lord, just let me have this little place to go to. Let me have this little place that's not your will. Let me have this little place that's condemned. You couldn't make a clear break. I don't have time this morning to tell you of church members who have died, who have been divorced, who had the worst things possible happen to them because they just couldn't make a clear break. One of the signs of worldliness is you can't make a clear break from the world. It's amazing that God let him go there. But you know what? <laughs> he hadn't been there very long when he got his hide out of there. He could see Solomon smoking. And he tells us in this 20th verse that goes on and uh, uh, he, he, uh, he escapes after verse 24, he, he leaves. But God let him be there. And it kind of reminds me of the Jews in the Psalms that God gave them the request. They, they wanted this and this, and God gave them request. But he sent leanness to their soul. I'm not saying today that God's going to kill you for living in worldliness. He might. You reap what you sow. But I will say this. Every day that I lived out of God's will, I lived in leanness of soul.
can't have it back. And so ends this story of Lot. The story of him going to a cave, father and children, an incestuous relationship, and never to be heard from again. The story of worldliness never ends well. Perhaps today you know you're not where you need to be. Perhaps your soul is being vexed by God. I'm fine. <laughs> uh, I find in my life increased activity, increased activity, increased activity because I don't want to be quiet and with God. Perhaps you're being vexed. But before we end in this uh, gloomy picture, this dark account, there's a silver lining here. God's mercy reaches out to his children in this world. God was merciful to allow Abraham to intercede and, and bargain him down. Intercede, 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 and bargain him down. And God's mercy spared Lot. He gave him another day to live. He wouldn't wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah along with Lot. Thank God. Thank God that men who plead for others get a hold of the mercy of God. I've never escaped the tears flowing down my mother's face and her concern for where I was. And I'm eternal grateful for her prayers. For my pastor's prayers. For the mercy of God. Plead for mercy. We see God's prayers being answered. It's of the Lord's mercy that we're not consumed because his compassions fell not. Ephesians tells us, but God, who is rich in mercy, wherein he loved us, for by grace are we saved. Well, listen, this morning, God is not only in the business of saving souls, but he's also in the business of salvaging his children. He, he said, come out from among them. Come out from among them and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing and I will be a father unto you. I mentioned 
in the beginning, this man, Robinson, Baptist preacher, he's had some hard things happen. And he got into the world and he was running. And he thought, I'll go on vacations. I'll travel in Europe. And as he was traveling throughout Europe, he met a younger Christian woman that liked to visit with him and was visiting with him. And she knew that Robert was a, a man who had written some hymns. And one day, she was reading a hymn Come thou fount of every blessing. And she read it and said, what do you think of it, Robert? What do you think of this hymn? I don't think much of it. He didn't want to talk about it. And she said, no, no, tell me what you think of it. And he said, my fair woman, I wrote that hymn. And I'm as far from the Lord as I could possibly be. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And she said, but oh, Robert, Robert, listen. You also wrote streams of mercy never ceasing calls for songs of loudest praise. I don't know where you're at this morning, but I know that God's mercy and his grace is sufficient to put you where you need to be. As an old preacher who puts his pants on just like you do, I don't want you to miss out on the things that I missed out on. I want you to be honest with the Lord. And I want you to bow there in that pew or whatever you think you need to do. And I want you just to be open and honest as you can be because God knows where you're at anyway. But he wants to come out from among them and be a separate and I will receive you. That's not my promise. That's his promise. That I pray, Lord, help me to have my feet on the ground that they need to be on. Help me, Lord. May I experience the streams of mercy never ceasing. And may I lift my heart in praise because of that. Maybe tonight, this afternoon, or maybe we're still in the morning here. Maybe you need to just talk to the Lord a little bit before we sing, before we get distracted. And maybe you just need to plead for the mercy of God. And maybe tonight, or this morning, this afternoon, you're, uh, you're in a pretty good place. 
You know how you know you're in a pretty good place? If you go over to Philippians, you know you're in a pretty good place when you realize I've not arrived. I've not yet attained. I've not arrived. And Lord, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to experience you. I want to be in the center of your will. But only you can do that. Let's bow for prayer. And then we'll have Chris and Krista come in closing.